Sentire Media. Hello you, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 142, Poping Out of the Middle Ages, 1447 to 1492. We last left our succession of 15th century popes with Eugene IV, managing to get the upper hand on the Council of Basel, thanks to the Council of Ferrara and Florence that instead unified the Eastern and Western churches for a very short time. Long enough, at least, for Eugene to do a victory dance and then kick the bucket. In his place came Tommaso Parentuccelli, that's a mouthful, who took the name Nicholas V. You will know, of course, that Nicholas was the saint who inspired Father Christmas, or for the Americans, Santa Claus. This, of course, is not him, but the Roman nobility and Italian and European states must have thought that Christmas had come early because this guy was making peace with everyone left, right and centre and spreading the love really thick, and even throwing a great jubilee party in 1450. He made peace with the king of the Romans, meaning Germany, sort of. He made peace with the city of Basel, and even with the king of France, whom he allowed fiscal power over the clergy in France, as was allowed to Alphonse down in the kingdom of Naples. Nicholas was not always at peace with everyone in Italy, because of course that in the 15th century just wasn't an option. But he did manage to support Francesco Sforza in his bid to take Milan in a way that looked neutral as they passed off the money the Pope gave to Sforza as the sale of the city of Iesi in the market region. We saw then how in 1454 and 1455 the Italian peninsula reached the delicate balance of the Peace of Lodi first and then the Italic League of which the Pope was a member. Nicholas also had good relations with the minor players on the Italian scene, such as the Ordelaffi of Forlì, the Montefeltro in Urbino, and the Malatesta in Rimini and surrounding areas, as well as setting up a collaborative diarchy in the city of Bologna. At home, he managed to strike a balance between the powerful Colonna and Orsini families, increasing the lands of both factions. Nicholas even issued a papal bull, allowing more freedom of representation and election in Rome, albeit falling very short of granting full autonomy. However, for some this did not go far enough, especially for those who could remember the total freedom of the popeless period of the late 14th and early 15th centuries. So it was that, ironically, this gesture to grant greater autonomy provoked a conspiracy, in 1453, headed by a certain Stefano Porcari. The conspiracy was discovered, and Porcari, very forgivingly, was put to death. 
So, aside from this attempt at killing him, the reign of Nicholas V chugged on happily until his death in 1455. At the subsequent conclave, the cardinals could not really agree on a name, so they decided on a transition pope. This meant choosing a very old, possibly also sick pope, whose reign would not last long, but but who would stick around long enough for things to change and allow a compromise on the name of the next guy. The man chosen for this was a Spaniard who had come to Italy with King Alphonse of Aragon, Alfonso Borgia, who took the name of Calixtus III. We have already seen in our Naples episodes that he felt no loyalty to the son of Alphonse, Ferdinand, not recognising his authority over the Kingdom of Naples, and we saw that Ferdinand would have to wait until the next Pope to enter fully into power. The reign of Calixtus also saw a tipping point in the delicate balance between the baronial families of the Colonna and Orsini when an inheritance dispute came up, and he also put a lot of his own men into positions of power, particularly Spaniards, which was not at all appreciated by the xenophobic Italians. He continued with a rising trend in nepotism, making his nephew Pierluigi Borgia captain of the guard and general governor of Rome, a position that had traditionally been occupied by an Orsini. Interestingly for our future story, he also made another nephew cardinal in 1456 and then vice-chancellor, a position of great influence and power. The nephew in question, now eligible to become pope, was one Rodrigo Borgia. Pope Borgia finally fulfilled one of the tasks which he had been elected for, which was to not last too long, and died after three years of reign in 1458. His successor, Andrea Piccolomini, who became Pius II, came face to face with the difficulty of the Turkish question, and particularly with the loss of Anatolia, although he did catch a break in this sense. To see why, we need to talk about fashion for a bit. One of the main industries of Italy at the time was textiles. Now, back then, as we do now, they liked to have different coloured fancy clothes. To do that, you had to dye the clothes. But it is not enough to just chuck them in a vat of colour. Oh, no. The fabric first needs to be treated to hold the dye with what is known as a mordant. A substance that does this very well, apparently, is aluminium potassium sulphate, alum. Where was the best and most alum produced in the 15th century? Well, in Anatolia, of course. So suddenly, those trading in textiles had to deal with the Turkish Empire, who could now charge what they wanted for the substance. So, when an alum mine was discovered in 1461 in Tolfa, northwest of Rome, it was good news for those dealing in textiles and great news for the Pope who had a whole new source of income. The Pope vowed to use all the money from the mine for a future anti-Turkish crusade, and he also guilt-tripped the Christian merchants into buying only from the Pope and not from the so-called infidels. This new opportunity brought new investors and banks to the area, 
and here Pius started to cultivate privileged relations in particular with the bankers from Siena. Incidentally, until a few years ago, the Montepaschi di Siena Bank, founded in 1472, was one of the main ones in Italy, advertised even by Luciano Pavarotti before it crumbled under the weight of financial scandal. We have a lot of those in Italy, unfortunately. Anyway, the Pope now had a nice new influx of cash for his crusade projects, also increased by the creation of a new office, a college of 70, which would eventually weigh down the bureaucracy, but for now brought in a nice pile of dough. However, the other Christian forces were not really feeling the whole crusade business. Things got up close and personal for Venice and Hungary in 1461 when the Turks took Bosnia. Now that the threat was on their doorstep, they were on board. By 1464, everything was ready. Pius went off to Ancona to admire his wonderful fleet, ready to sail, and then died. As we know, nothing quite gets in the way of you successfully organising and leading a crusade to fight the Ottoman Empire as your own death. Without the driving force of the Pope behind it, the crusade fell apart and never even left Ancona. The next chap to come along, Pietro Balbo, took the name of Paul II, and he had to deal with some interior issues before he could even think about a crusade. First of all, the Roman Anguillaria family rebelled, and he had to put them down and took away all of their lands. He also inherited a bit of a hot potato from his predecessor, Pius II. You see, there had been a war with the coalition of the Pope, Venice and San Marino, as well as others on one side, against the Malatesta of Romagna, whose base was in Rimini, on the other side. The Malatesta had been defeated, but had been allowed to keep Cesena under Novello Malatesta and Rimini under Sigismondo, as long as they lived. Then the cities would return to the Papal States. Incidentally, if you visit Rimini today, you can see Sigismund's castle, Castel Sigismondo, which also houses the Federico Fellini Museum and the Tempio Malatestiano, a church that the Pope had grumbled about, saying it looked more like a pagan temple than a proper church. When the first of the brothers died under the new Pope Paul II, the illegitimate son of the other brother, named Roberto Malatesta, moved to oppose him, but got no support, because nobody really cared. So a diarchy was set up in Cesena, with the local oligarchy quite happy about this, because they now had more autonomy than under the Malatesta. The lower classes weren't too pleased, but then, as now, the powerful didn't really care about the huddled masses, and a rebellion was put down in 1469. Things were a bit more complicated when it came to Rimini, when Sigismondo Malatesta died here, his wife Isabella set up a regency for their son, Sallustio. Roberto Malatesta, the illegitimate son of Sigismondo, then offered to help out the Pope. He took the city and then flip-sized and supported Isabella and Sallustio. Then he got rid of them and decided to go out on his own. Pope Paul II was now ready to intervene militarily, but fearing that he would become too powerful in the region, Milan, Venice and Florence intervened to stop him and he could go no further.
There were, however, evidently no hard feelings with Florence, for it was under Paul II that the financial control of the alum mines of Tolfa were handed over to the Medici Bank. The reign of Paul II coincided with a good period for the city of Bologna, which was undergoing an economic rebirth under its signore, Giovanni II Bentivoglio, the I Love You family. Bologna had become quite an influence in the surrounding area. Pope Paul managed to reach an agreement with Giovanni, as well as having good relations with Borso of Este, ruler of Ferrara, whom he made a duke in this period. This is interesting because it would soon allow a friend of ours, Lucrezia Borgia, to hold the title of Duchess. So, all in all, by the time he died in 1471, Paul II had done a decent job. He was followed by Francesco della Rovere, Sixtus IV, elected on the 9th of August, 1471, and he really liked the idea of the whole nepotism business, attempting to carve out a signoria in the Romagna and the Marche areas for his nephews. He is particularly remembered for a couple of things. First of all, his clash with Lorenzo de' Medici. You see, the Medici had their eyes on the city of Volterra, southwest of Florence, and the Pope gave them his support on one condition. They would not use the alum mines in Volterra, but would continue to buy alum from the mines of Tolfa, under papal control, yet managed by the Medici. Of course, when Florence took Volterra, they started to use the mines there. Then, Lorenzo had his eyes on the city of Imola. This time, the Pope took it and then gave it to his nephew, Giuliano. They continued to spite each other, with Lorenzo trying to extend his influence into Umbria and Sixtus causing trouble for the Medici wherever he could. The peak of the clash centred around an anti-Medici family faction, the Pazzi, literally meaning the Crazies. First, in 1476, the Pope handed control of the Tolfa mine over to the Pazzi, and then gave the go-ahead in 1478 for the Pazzi conspiracy, and when that failed, war broke out between the Papal States, aided by Naples on one side and Florence on the other. We saw that this conflict petered out due to Lorenzo heading to Naples to start a bromance with King Ferdinand, and then the temporary need to all band together after the Turkish invasion of southern Italy in 1480. So the struggle against Lorenzo the Magnificent was one thing Pope Sixtus is remembered for. The other is a building that you may have heard of that bears his name, the Sistine Chapel. Consecrated at the end of his pontificate, in 1483, it had yet to be decorated by a certain Michelangelo Buonarroti, a.k.a. Michelangelo. In general, the name of Sixtus IV is tied to a moment of great renovation for Rome, to the extent that if you own property in Rome and did not invest in improving it, you risked having it confiscated. But this push for innovation which had been developing for decades did not just involve architecture. This was a time of great spread of humanistic culture, the time when what we call the Renaissance really kicked off in style.
Rome and the other cities of the Papal States became centers of culture. Painters, sculptors, writers and artists in general were called by noble families to enrich their property and their cities. Even minor centers, which is why you can find artistic treasures today even in a small church in the Italian province. Some prime examples were the School of Veronese in Ferrara, Piero della Francesca in Urbino, and in Umbria, Piero Vannucci, known as Perugino. It was in this period that St. Peter's was restructured and the fountain placed in the square, and Palazzo Venezia was built, as Rome discovered a newfound love for antiquity. Finally, universities that had existed for centuries, such as Bologna or Perugia, received a new vitality and interest in this period. Sixus IV, who died in 1484, was succeeded by a man the Colonna had pushed to have, Battista Cibo, Innocent VIII, who lasted a good eight years until his death in 1492. It was on the 25th of July, 1492, that the nephew of Calixtus III, Rodrigo Borgia, was elected and took the name of Alexander VI. As we know, he makes for a great story. He was elected a few months before the end of Columbus's first journey. Grazie mille. Thank you very much for listening. And thanks in particular to my wonderful Patreon supporters. Starting with the first half of the Margherita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Alison H, Amanda D, Anthony G, Brian J, Carrie W, Celine, Cindy M, David P, Dean V, Dominique T, Emily B, Federica R, Francisco A, Gabriel S, Greg, Gunnar, Ignazio, Il Valentino, Jacob L, Jane J, Jeff M, Jeff S, Jeffrey W, Jesse and Shari, John W, and Juan Diego. Then, of course, we mustn't forget our tippy-top level donors from the Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat, David C, Oak, JW, Sen, and David A. And a big welcome, benvenuti, to David P. and Jacob L. If you wish, like them, you can become a Patreon supporter by going to patreon.com forward slash a history of Italy or going to a history of Italy.com to the support page where you can click on the Patreon button and have access to ad free episodes and extra content. You can also get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com for questions, comments, or just to say hello. And you can also follow us on our social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.